Welcome listeners to the First Things Podcast, the Editor's Desk. This is Rusty Reno at First Things World Headquarters here in New York with Justin Lee, who teaches undergraduate writing at University of California, Irvine, and who penned a piece in the May 2022 issue, Holy Fear, about about, um, the limits of evangelical anti-fundamentalism, I suppose. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thank you, Rusty. I'm excited to be here. Now, I would be remiss were I not to uh, chastise any listener who's not currently a subscriber to First Things Magazine, that all the cool kids subscribe to First Things. So if you're a listener and you're not a subscriber to First Things, run, don't walk to the nearest computer and log on to firstthings.com and go to subscribe now. Okay, we've got that um, that we've got that ad campaign out of the way, Justin. And um, you know, one thing I really like about the piece is uh, um, uh, the uh, a little a little autobiography. And you open up with a interesting figure, Mad Max. <laughs> Was that his real name, or is that yeah? That's, well, that's what people called him, and I I don't I don't think one ever chooses. The name Mad Max. <laughs> yeah, I think Mad Max himself did not choose Mad Max, and but, Mad Max but he embraced it. <laughs> he embraced it. Apparently, he he's apparently a, or at least was a, a fairly well known, kind of circuit, um, preacher, um, who uh, you know would go around the country doing his, um, you know, fire and brimstone shtick at universities, but uh, but he was. I think local to uh, Terre Haute, or at least the Terre Haute area, if I remember correctly. He he passed a few years back, so he was a regular figure. Yeah, yeah. And he serves in your memoir-esque piece here as a kind of um, exemplar of a, a certain kind of conservative American Protestantism. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how would you characterize that, that, that kind of Protestantism? Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's, it's definitely fundamentalism, um, but, but it's, it's certainly not representative of fundamentalism. Uh, it's of kind of this um, almost, you know, self-caricaturized uh, version of fundamentalism. Um, and, you know, where, you know, judgment is, is, you know, it's, it's kind of the, it's the whole purpose for its existence. Um, the um, emphasis is on, you know, God's impending judgment of sinners. And that, uh, you know, there's, there's only one very narrow way. And it happens to look a lot like you know, 1950s <laughs> fundamentalism. <laughs> um, and, but, the, but uh, with, with guys like Mad Max, you know, it's, you know, it's not, it, it, it really doesn't seem to be about the desire to see people saved. Um, you know, there, there seems to be kind of a sadism animating it. And, you know, the, this is, this is not the true of, this is not true of like every, 
Turner Burn preacher, you know, like or guys like Ray Comfort, you know, who are very much of that mold, who, you know, I think genuinely are, um, you know, eager for the salvation of everyone. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. So guys like Mad Max had this perverse pleasure in, in, the, in the aesthetics of judgment. So maybe it's a kind of the vanity of the saved. <laughs> yeah. Know, I, I know the way. Um, well, you're, as you, in your piece, your, your parents were, they were campus min, uh, ministers uh, for InterVarsity Fellowship. Um, and so their approach was, was more community building, less uh, street corner fire and brimstone. Right. Yeah, very. I think I think my my parents would save any talk of fire and brimstone for you know personal personal stuff, you know, personal counseling. I mean, they definitely believed in hell. You know, they believed in judgment, but uh, it's not the kind of thing that draws people in. If you're you know presenting you know presenting the church, presenting the body of Christ to to unbelievers. Um, yeah, but they would certainly, you know, get you one-on-one and, and say, you know, you know, what is your eternal destination? And if you die today, where, what's going to happen? And, you know, and, and of course you kind of have to earn that conversation with people. You know, you, you have to develop a kind of rapport, kind of trust, you know, before I think that becomes meaningful from a, the standpoint of witness. Yeah, I think uh, that's a, it's a great point. You know, I think that I sometimes see street corner preachers whom I think that well, their, their witness is to, they're, wit- they're witnessing, to whom are they witnessing, right? Mm-hmm. Are they witnessing to others or are they witnessing to God, so to speak? Um, and there's a sense of, you know, and it's, I, I wouldn't want to write it off altogether, but because there is something about testifying before the Lord uh, and showing your faith. You're even willing to stand up in the midst of people in New York City and say that um, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life without him. You know, and then you go on to these more extreme statements, and the more extreme they are, the more you feel that you're really witnessing, as opposed to witnessing to others, in which case your witness has got to be ordered towards bringing them in. It's a different kind of thing. Uh, so you, you described, um, you described the, the temptation in the evangelical world to, to, um, what, what you call anti-fundamentalism. Um, and I read the piece and I thought, Lee, he's, he's not, Anti-fundamental. He's not fundamentalist. He's anti-anti-fundamentalism. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm at least like being anti-anti-Trump. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm at least moving in that direction. You know, even just a few years ago, I, I certainly, you know, would have would have had a different attitude. Um, but you know the the way the culture is moving, um, you know, that there are the the similarities and the kinship, you know, that 
that I have as an evangelical with fundamentalists is it's real and it's just becoming more and more clear. Um, even, even if, you know, the, you know, as an esthete, I, I balk at it and feel uncomfortable with it, you know, whatever. Uh, Matthew Schmitz, um, had a great uh, piece a few weeks back in, uh, American conservative, uh, just looking at Christian populism in the U S and, and just how, how unabashed it can be about the truth. And, and so fundamentalists would kind of fit that mold of a, of a Christian populist. And, you know, it's, it's hard to deny that when it comes to certain, you know, pathologies in our culture, um, they really are more willing than a lot of mainstream evangelicals to stand up and say what's true. You know, when I was a professor at Creighton University, it's a Jesuit school in Omaha, Nebraska, one of what we had a department meeting, one of the greatest challenges we face is, as teachers. And a couple of these older faculty said, oh, Catholic fundamentalism, you know, by which they, it's a different phenomenon, by which they meant a kind of legalistic, um, dogmatic, the Pope says, blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, well, I think I said out loud, you're out of your minds. These students don't know anything about Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> Whether they went to church or not, they don't seem to know anything about Christianity. Yeah. And so it seems like, you know, if only I could have had some Catholic fundamentalists in my class, it would have been reassuring. <laughs> yeah. So it seems to be you're resonating with that same kind of reaction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, any kind of formation is better than no formation. You, you, there is a strong, it's a funny thing. Well, the, I mean, I guess all religious traditions are like this, but I'm a very much a evangelical outsider. Um, you know, I was raised an Episcopalian. I always tell people I was never a Protestant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the which is true, actually, I never was a Protestant, and not in in sensibility, let's put it that way. Yeah, um, never an American Protestant, I guess, is the way to put it, because I, I think there's a certain kind of second grade awakening quality to, I think, the classic American Protestant personality that comes out so beautifully in your piece. But there's a, there's a, is a pattern, there's a very strong pattern, I think, in post-war American evangelicalism of um, kind of fighting the battle against, you know, troglodyte fundamentalists. And you cite uh, Philip Yancey and, uh, and, and Russ Moore, not to question whether the the, the that which they're guarding against is real. You give a nice examples from your 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 mother's background, but the, I guess the you're you're wondering is it really salient? <laughs> Maybe real, but is it really salient, or 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 are they fighting demons that that are um, increasingly less relevant to the cultural situation in the twenty first century? Um, is that fair characterization of how you how you see these projects or this this habit? Yeah, yeah, I think it's. I, I mean, it's the the pathologies of fundamentalism and of and of religion that's driven out of fear and fear of punishment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which as we get in First John, fear has to do with chastisement, has to do with punishment, 
you know, and we're warned against it, even as we're told to obey. And, you know, th- there's something that, that I think can cripple the spirit mm. that, uh, that's, that's very much present. And, you know, and that, you know, I don't want to give an inch to, uh, when it comes to fundamental, uh, yeah, uh, is it first John perfect love casts out fear? Yeah. And, and the, you know, and having said that though, as real as that is, you know, it's, it's not what's most urgent in the moment. Um, it's not, it's not the battle that the church faces in the U S right now. Is it um, indifference that we, yeah, it's, it's indifference and it is, you know, it's this watered down, um, vision of the gospel that, um, you know, is just, is traded, you know, traded this, you know, the, the a much more formally, uh, formally much more robust vision, uh, for just moralistic therapeutic deism. Right. That Chris Smith formulation just seems indispensable because it's so apt to, to the way that, to the way that so many of us think about, think about, uh, the relation or relationship to God, <laughs> uh, be nice and everything will be fine. Yeah. And in, in an earlier, in an earlier draft of this essay, I, uh, I refer to this as you know, boomer Jesus. Hmm. It's kind of the, uh, don't be mean to boomers like me. I, <laughs> Although I, we, we deserve it. I love my boomers. I love my boomer parents. Um, and, and I, and, you know, I love Philip Yancey. Um, and, but there's, you know, there is this boomer tendency to, it's, got, it's all got to be about grace. It's got to be about love until love gets um, watered down into this abstraction. You talk about, I mean, the, the anti-fundamentalist strain is about the wounds of, the, the kind of wounds of fear, the way you describe it. Um, you can never really trust the, in God because you don't trust that God won't, won't, won't condemn you. But then you you talk about different kinds of wounds, and the cheap grace has its own wounds. What are the wounds of cheap grace? Yeah, I I think that they're they're myriad. Um, you know, they but but they all tend to have to do with you know the the soul being unformed, unstructured, um, and personality and and just the life one lives um, being um, just 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 disordered not having not having a foundation you know when the foundation's really there it's right there waiting God is always waiting um, God is always available but you know when you get you know this uh, this moralistic therapeutic gospel um, that has no emphasis on discipline, no emphasis no emphasis on obedience, and particularly obedience in community with others, which is really the only thing that makes obedience possible. Um, you know, you you drift, and and when you drift, you know, I think it's just your. Um, you know, you're just, you're inviting wounds. And, um, you know, for for me, you know, in my late twenties and, you know, 
early mid thirties. Um, wounds have been, you know, sexual, relational, and you know, it's a um, yeah. People, the uh, I mean, sin has a scar, creates scar tissue, uh, and it, it can be difficult. I mean, that scar tissue can shrink, but it never goes away. And you, you go ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the disciplines and you talk about in your in your bright college years at Taylor University, the uh, purity culture or purity discipline. Um, and you, I, I, I found it kind of fascinating. You know, the the typical complaint, at least the secular outsider, thinks, "Oh, that's really harmful because it's so um, repressive." You know. The R word, repressive. Uh, but you point out that actually, what you found such a burden was that it it was a kind of version of the prosperity gospel. <laughs> that if you maintain purity, everything's going to work out so wonderfully. You find just the right woman, your marriage is going to be all you know better. Your sex life when after you're married is going to be better. And it's uh, I never quite until I read your thing, I never thought of that. It's, that's immediately popped into my mind. It's it's a kind of therapeutic version of the prosperity gospel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there is some truth to that, I believe. I mean, I mean, as, as, as much as I can believe as, as a single person, um, you know, I do believe that living a, you know, a well-ordered life, you know, in our loves, especially romantic loves, um, leads to deeper satisfaction. And, but uh, you know, as with, as with so many things that go wrong with our faith, you start with something that is obviously true, um, and and then make it all about that one thing. Um, you just turn up the volume disproportionately on this one thing, and and then the the whole frame gets warped. And that was definitely the case with with purity culture. Uh, it was the case for me. I, I think. You know, like I, you know, when I was in in high school, that's when uh, Josh Harris's book "I Kiss Dating Goodbye" came out, and I don't know if you caught that um, from from your world. I was already married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, dating question was already off the table. Yeah. So, so this, uh, you know, so this this book comes out, and the, and the thesis is: don't even date. God will just drop a wife into your lap. He'll just drop a husband into your lap. It's just going to happen, you know, and (laughs) it's just be obedient, follow God. Don't, don't take an active role and, and just pray. And so just to, just to give you an idea of how weak beer that is, um, Josh Harris himself, you know, has, um, you know, he's basically apostatized now. Um, and I think it's just for the same reason that things didn't work out. Yeah. Th- <laughs> things didn't, things didn't work often out. don't work out. Yeah. We have in the Catholic world, John Paul II's theology of the body. I've always been a little bit, I mean, one hesitates to, to fault find in a saint, but, uh, I always thought it was a little too cheery about, uh, 
marriage and sex and stuff like that. And I said, mm, no, you know, uh, there's no, there's no one, there's no, there's no, uh, trouble free, trouble free path, uh, to, to the heavenly kingdom. It's all full of, of suffering and, and, uh, and, and difficulty. <laughs> so you, you round things out here and the sort of, you know, we're wary of the fear-driven, um, the fear-driven fundamentalist world, uh, but you kind of circle back and sort of say, well, actually they do get, what is the thing that they get right? Yeah. I mean, they, they are obedient, um, in, in many ways, um, you know, fundamentalists do tend to be more obedient than more mainstream evangelicals, at least in my experience. And, um, and I, you know, I think that uh, it's also likely that they're better at passing on the faith. Uh, they're better at raising children in the faith. I mean, this definitely goes wrong. People rebel against, you know, the... Um, too fierce strictures, but, uh, but I don't think it's as significant as the other end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, I bring up Josh Harris's apostasy, uh, because, you know, it is that prosperity gospel shallowness, um, where there, there aren't real roots of faith. You know, when you're tested by experience, um, you know, when things don't play out according to that script, um, you know, your, your faith is in tatters and, and of course that script is not the gospel. You know, the gospel remains true. All the, all the real claims of, of Christ and the apostles remain true. Uh, we just haven't been paying attention. We haven't been rooting ourselves in them. The years ago when John Paul II promulgated, um, Veritatis Splendor, encyclical about moral truth and articulated this doctrine of intrinsically evil acts. So there's things you're never permitted to do. So you have to always obey these negative commandments. And, you know, it's interesting in the Catholic world, there's something very similar to this kind of uh, cheap grace notion. And, and he was obviously pushing against that. And I remember reading, who was it that was, uh, that wrote it in response. It was an old kind of moral theologian, a polemicist against this, who said that the church should never require obedience to something that it's not sure is required. And I could see that there the idea is that obedience is, is a necessary evil in the eye. It was Bernard Herring. And uh, really was an eye-opening moment for me. And I realized, well, wait a minute. I mean, would it ever be would it ever be harmful to obey obey something thinking that it was God's commandment, even if it wasn't? You know, I mean, obviously, you should never obey a commandment that actually requires you to do an evil thing. But uh, to go the second mile, to quote our Lord, yeah. <laughs> in obedience, surely would be form you more deeply yeah. than, than to harm you. Yeah, you know, I, I think of. Uh, Thomas Akempis and the imitation of Christ. And, you know, one of the things that he says in there repeatedly is, you know, it's just stressing 
um, almost mindless, just reflexive obedience to your superior. And, uh, you know, in the context of a monastery, of course, um, and you, you get a, a, some of this as well, I think, in uh, The Cloud of Unknowing. Um, but, uh, but it really is, you know, a spiritual, not just a moral behavioral discipline. Um, and, you know, it's a, it, is, it really is a way of obeying God and loving God. Um, you know, it's a, it, it is a, you know, it's, you know, if we let it be, it can be something that trains us deeply in the imitation of Christ and the imitation of his love of the father. And well, one of the, I've, I've come to see that obedience is the way, because if, 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 if everything we do to obey things that we don't understand is actually the engine of transcendence, so to speak. Uh, I mean, my, my dog is on my lap. Uh, if she obeys me, she can become more than dog-like. In other words, I can train her to do things that a feral dog could never do. And she has to obey in order to be elevated, so to speak. Yeah, ennobled. Ennobled. And in the same way, we as human beings, if we want to live, um, if we want to live, you know, in a more transcendent way than our human nature, which is ultimately what God promises us with uh, fellowship with him in all eternity, then the only way we can do that is by obeying his commands. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we don't like to think that we're unable to, uh, we're unable to uh, be the engine of our own self-transcendence. But, <laughs> but as St. Augustine said, what am I but a guide to my own self-destruction? Um, so obedience is the engine of, uh, of transcendence. That seemed to be that's what I took from your piece. Yeah. And, you know, that that's the way I, you know, that the way I put it in the piece is that, you know, we, you know, we have a choice uh, to whether we're going to make room for God's grace. You know, his, his grace is always, it's always pouring. And, you know, we, we just need to open ourselves and, and that's a decision. And, but it's not just, you know, this, I choose to believe. So give me the grace, you know, it's, you know, it's a disciplined opening, you know, opening, being open, being receptive to the grace of Christ is, um, it is a discipline. Um, it's something that, you know, we have an innate capacity for, but it has to be developed and it has to be developed in community. Yeah. As you end the, what, what you want from your church is not an affirmation of your self-will, but help in being obedient. Yeah. 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 I, I need that because it's not going to happen otherwise. You know, the, the pandemic, you know, has been, has been hell for obedience. Um, you know, d- a remote church, digital church is not church. And, you know, it feels good to be able to see faces on zoom or, or over Facebook and, you know, and to get, get some teaching, you know, get, get some crumbs of being fed but you know the the accountability um of just being face to face with the other in Christ um and just that direct immediate um uh, presence of the spirit um presence of expectation um 
you know, if you don't have that, you're not going to retain your character. You're not going to retain virtue. And I know for me during the pandemic, that was, that's been one of the hardest things, you know, sin, sin really opened up um, all of a sudden um, because I was separated from my community, separated from the body. So the devil can do his work. Yeah. That's, that's the fire and brimstone in me speaking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's not entirely wrong. You know, it's, you know, there, there is, there is punishment, but, you know, as, as a believer, you know, I, um, you know, I don't have, I don't have fear of eternal punishment. You know, I don't have, I don't have fear of that, but I do, I do have fear of, um, you know, self-induced suffering in the here and now. Um, that is, you know, that, that's not godly suffering that, that's, you know, the, the suffering that we bring directly on ourselves through sin, um, you know, it's, it's not really educative. Um, it's, um, it can become that once we begin to obey again, but, you know, in itself, you know, it's not, you know, it's not anything I want a part of. Well, thanks for your piece. Um, 2022, uh, May 2022 issue. The piece is Holy Year. Uh, thanks, Justin, for your time. Yeah, sure thing, Russell. Thanks for having me.